Welcome. Please find your seats. Welcome to this, our final Advent Chapel. Our speaker this evening is Dr. Dan Powers. We look forward to his bringing the word of the Lord to us in a few minutes. Advent designates the period of waiting and anticipating the coming of the Christ child. All this week in chapel, we have been celebrating Advent by means of a traditional Advent wreath with four candles around the wreath and the Christ candle in the center. The four candles represent the themes of hope and peace, joy and love. Normally the candles would be lit in succession over four Sundays of Advent leading up to Christmas. For the purpose of our chapel week, we have been lighting the candles in succession each night. On Monday evening, we lit both the candles for hope and peace. On Tuesday evening, we lit the candle of joy. And tonight, we will light the candle of love. Derek Sint and his family will lead us with scripture and prayer as they light the candle of love. Now hear the loving words of the Lord. The Lord appeared to us in the past, saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with loving kindness. I will build you up again, and you will be rebuilt, O virgin Israel. Again, you will take up your tambourines and go out to dance with the joyful noise. Again, you will plant vineyards on the hills of Samaria. The farmers will plant them and enjoy their fruit. There will be a day when watchmen cry out on the hills of Ephraim, Come, let us go up to Zion, to the Lord our God. This is what the Lord says. Sing with joy for Jacob. Shout for the foremost of the nations. Make your praises heard and say, O Lord, save your people, the remnant of Israel. I will sing of the Lord's great love forever. With my mouth, I will make your faithfulness known through all generations. I will declare that your love stands firm forever, that you established your faithfulness in heaven itself. You said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your line forever and make your throne firm through all generations. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we ought to love one another. For God so loved that he gave his only son, that you and I, and all who trust in him, might have abundant and eternal life. Jesus is the greatest expression of God's everlasting love. From the manger to the cross of the throne of God, he reaches out to save us from the sin and fill us with his love. I light the final candle of Advent, the candle of love. 
We celebrate the fact that he loved us enough to come to be our Savior, and he loves us so much that he is coming again as Lord to be with him forever. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, and Jesus loves you too. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love and for your sacrifice. The love that we did not deserve, but that you gave us anyway. We thank you for this time of anticipation and celebration as we look forward to celebrating the coming of your Son to save us that we might be with you. I pray that you keep this love in our hearts throughout the Advent season, that that love would spill out to everyone we meet. We thank you in your precious holy name. Amen. Let's stand and sing a couple carols. It's so good tonight to have Dorothy Brown to sing for us a little later on the service. She uh, taught voice here for many years and a colleague of ours had retired. And after Dr. Powers preaches, she'll sing for us. But let's sing Hark the Herald, Angels Sing. You may be seated. Well, this evening we have lit the candle of love in our Advent wreath. With the possible exception of perhaps Valentine's Day, I don't think there's any other holiday that is so closely connected to the idea of love as Christmas is. Wouldn't you agree with that? The concept of love seems to permeate everything during the season of Christmas. We see it in the giving of gifts. We see it in the way the stores try to sell us those gifts. We sense it in our family gatherings. And we see it in the Christmas movies that pop up on television during this time of year. Christmas and the notion of love seem to be inherently entwined. And so as I began to prepare my sermon on the theme of love for this Advent service, I pulled out my Greek concordance to track all the many references to love that can be found in the Christmas accounts in the New Testament. I mean, if I'm going to preach a sermon on the theme of love at Christmas, it only makes sense to find a compelling passage in the stories about Jesus' birth that talks about love, right? Well, my study of this was just really amazing. Do you know how many times the word for love is found in the gospel stories about the advent and birth of Jesus? Now, before you answer, let me remind you that the Greek language has at least four different words that can be translated as love in English. There's the word phileo that refers to a kind of friendship love. There's the Greek word eros that refers to something like a romantic love. There's the word storge that refers to the kind of love that parents and siblings have for each other. And of course, there's the word agape that seems to refer many times to an unconditional love, such as God has for humanity, and which humanity sometimes has for God. And so, you don't, so do you know how many times the word for love in its different forms is found in the gospel stories about the advent and birth of Jesus? Let me hear you guess. 150. How many? There's a zero. You have 200. 
A lot of different guesses, right? Well, if I've looked through here and um, studied the Christmas stories and looking in the, uh, the, uh, the original languages, then how many times I found the references to love in the Christmas stories? None. An absolute zero. Zilch. In the entire Christmas story in the biblical record, there's not one mention of the word love. Can you believe it? I must admit I was stunned. I would have predicted at least five or ten references to love in the Christmas stories. I mean, when you look around us and recognize all the sights and sounds of true love at Christmas, you'd certainly think that you could predict a lot of references to love in the Bible. But sometimes we're not so good at predicting these things, are we? Sometimes we can just be way off. Reminds me of a story I heard about the chief of a Native American tribe that lived around the Great Lakes. Well, one day in early September, the chief was asked by his tribal elders if the winter that year was going to be cold or mild. Well, the chief really had no idea, and so he asked his medicine man. But the medicine man also did not know, for he too had lost touch with reading the signs from the natural world around the Great Lakes. In truth, neither of them had any idea about how to predict the coming winter. However, the chief decided to take a more modern approach. And so he called the National Weather Service in Gaylord, Michigan. <laughs> yes, it's going to be a cold winter, the meteorological officer told the chief. And the chi so the chief went back to his tribe and told the men to collect plenty of firewood because it was going to be a cold winter. Well, two weeks later, the chief called the Weather Service again and asked for an update. Are you still forecasting a cold winter? He asked. Yes, it's going to be very cold, the weather officer told him. Well, as a result of this brief conversation, the chief went back to the tribe and told his people to collect every bit of wood they could find. A month later, the chief called the National Weather Service again and asked about the coming winter. Yes, he was told, it's going to be one of the coldest winters ever. Well, thank you so much for that information, the chief asked, but he said, I'm really curious, how can you be so sure it's going to be such a cold winter? The weatherman replied, it's really quite easy. We know it's going to be a really cold winter because we have heard that the Native Americans of the Great Lakes are collecting wood like crazy. <laughs> well, I guess we're not any better at predicting things in the weather, people, or at for, or forecasting our weather. Surely I would have guessed that there would have been at least one reference to love in the Christmas story, but there's not. And so why all the talk about love at Christmas? Have we made a mistake? Have we missed the point about Christmas completely then? Well, I don't think so. I must admit I was pretty surprised and even disappointed to discover that the word love is not used in any of the birth story narratives of Jesus. And so I began to wonder, I wonder what the earliest reference to love is in the gospel accounts. I wonder what the earliest reference is. Now, the approach of our four gospel writers is really quite different, as I'm sure you know. And sometimes it's difficult to determine the exact chronological timeline that's being followed in each one of the Gospels. But in Matthew's Gospel, the first reference to love is found in chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. In Luke's Gospel, the first reference to love is the very same passage that we find from Matthew's Sermon on the Mount. But in Luke's Gospel, this reference is found in chapter 6. In Mark's Gospel, the first clear reference to love is not found until chapter 10, where we are told that Jesus loved the rich young ruler who was trying to inherit eternal life. But in John's gospel, 
the first reference to love is found in chapter 3. And so it would appear that the first reference to love in the gospel accounts would be found in John chapter 3. And wouldn't you know, the first reference to love in the gospel accounts is perhaps the greatest passage about love in the entire Bible. In John chapter 3, verse 16, we read, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, Jesus, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. As far as I can determine, this is the earliest reference to love in our four New Testament gospel accounts. You know, one way to express love is to talk about it all the time. I think this is one of the things I was expecting or predicting when I went on a concordance search for the word love in the Christmas stories. But talking about love is not the only way to express love. Another way to express love is to show love, to demonstrate love, to act in a loving way. Sometimes it's very easy to say that we love someone, but it's a lot harder to actually show that love to them. Because of this, acts of love are often much more meaningful and much more significant than simply words of love. It seems like children recognize this truth very well. Several years ago, a group of professional people asked a group of four to eight-year-olds to respond to the question, what does love mean? You've probably heard some of their responses. They're really quite remarkable. But it was interesting for me to see how often these children described love more as something that a person does instead of something that a person says. So for instance, six-year-old Claire said, my mommy loves me more than anybody. You don't see anyone else kissing me to sleep at night. And seven-year-old Danny said, Love is when my mommy makes coffee for my daddy, and she takes a sip before giving it to him to make sure the taste is okay. Six-year-old Chrissy said, Love is when you go out to eat and give somebody most of your french fries without making them give you any of theirs. My favorite response is perhaps that of eight-year-old Rebecca, who said, When my grandmother got arthritis, she couldn't bend over and paint her toenails anymore. So my grandfather does it for her all the time, even when his hands got arthritis too. She said, that's love. You see, true love is usually measured much better by what is done than by what is merely said. So during this preparation time for Christmas, during the season of Advent, it's important for us to think about what God has done for us in the earliest reference to love in the Gospels, we are reminded of the truth that God loved the world so much. He so loved the world that he gave us his only begotten son. This act, this gift of love, this sacrificial deed is the true gift of love at Christmas. For God so loved the world that he gave his son. It's interesting to look at the Greek word that is translated as gave in the Greek New Testament. The word for gave here in John 3.16 is derived from the same root that is used to form the Greek word for gift. This shouldn't be so surprising because the ideas of gift and giving are inherently related to each other. In the New Testament writings and in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, these two words for gift and giving are regularly used to describe the sacrificial offerings, 
that the Hebrew people offered to God in the temple sacrificial system. The people offered these gifts. They gave these gifts year after year after year. They offered these gifts. They gave these gifts over and over and over again. But when God gave us Christ, he gave us a gift that was final and that was once for all. This usage of the two Greek words gift and giving opens up the New Testament teaching that God is a God who gives. Since God gave his only begotten son, Jesus is referred to as the gift of God. As we can see in Jesus' conversation with the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4. When we read in the New Testament, we find that not only is God described as giving us Jesus, but Jesus is also described as giving himself for all people, for giving himself for all our sins. I love the way that Paul develops this idea of the gift of Christ that we first received at Christmas. In Galatians chapter 1, Paul gives praise to God and to the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age. And then in Galatians chapter 2, Paul gives thanks to God because as he writes, the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This is why love and Christmas go together so completely. God loved so much that he gave his only son, Jesus, the Son of God incarnate. Love and giving. Giving and love. These two concepts are almost inseparable. While I suppose it might be possible to give without loving, it is absolutely impossible to love without giving. And this is precisely what God did for us on that first Christmas morning. It was love that prompted him to fix that bright star in the eastern night sky to announce the birth of his one and only son. It was love that caused him to have the angels announce the glad tidings of that birth to lonely shepherds in the field. It was love that led God to respond to the need and sinfulness of humanity through the gift of a baby instead of through the destruction of another flood-like judgment. God loved the world so much that he gave his only begotten son, Jesus, the son of God himself. God could not love without giving, and so he gave himself. As God incarnate, as God in the flesh, Jesus came as the visible proof of God's love, and he freely gave himself to redeem us from sin. This is the message that John reminds us of in our passage for this evening, John 3.16. God loved the world so much. That is to say, he loved us so much that he gave his only begotten son. I like what Verlin Verbrugge writes about this free gift of Christ. He writes, those who have received Christ as a free gift respond to the double command to love God and to love their neighbor by a twofold giving. First, they give themselves to God. This is actually the only legitimate offering that can and should be brought to God, as we can see from Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Second, Fairbrugger writes, they give themselves to other people in love. 
You see, it's only natural that God's gift of love would cause us to love God in return. What incredible gift he has given to us. God gave us Jesus to show us what it truly means to live as a child of God. In other words, God gave us Jesus to show us how to truly live. But one thing we don't often think about is God also gave us Jesus to show us how to truly die. In that same passage from Galatians 2 that I quoted before, Paul writes, For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life, death, and resurrection of God's Christmas gift, Jesus, show us what it means to be a true follower of Christ. And like Christ, we are also called to live for God, to die to sin, and be raised to new life of obedience and victory. How's that for a Christmas gift that keeps on giving? But as Jesus reminds us in Matthew chapter 22, God's great gift of love also prompts us to give gifts of love to those around us. One of the things we have to remember is that we can't love God and not reach out to other people in love. If we love God, we will love other people. God's greatest gift of all on that first Christmas morning, the gift of Jesus, reminds us that we also must love the people around us, that we also must give gifts of love. This is the reason why we give gifts at Christmas. You know that, right? And yet, you know what's funny? It seems like sometimes the busyness of the Christmas season often wants to make us forget all of this. We can become so busy and so frazzled by all the wrappings of Christmas that we risk losing sight of what it is all about. Christmas is all about love. Some time ago, you may have read this, but an anonymous writer rewrote the great love chapter of 1 Corinthians 13 into a Christmas version of this famous passage. Listen to these words. If I decorate my house perfectly with plaid bows, strands of twinkling lights and shiny balls, but do not show love to my family, I'm just another decorator. If I slave away in the kitchen, baking dozens of Christmas cookies, preparing gourmet meals and arranging a beautifully adorned table at mealtime, but do not show love to my family, I'm just another cook. If I work at the soup kitchen, carol in the nursing home and give all that I have to charity, but do not show love to my family, it profits me nothing. If I trim the spruce with shimmering angels and crocheted snowflakes, attend a myriad of holiday parties and sing in the choir's cantata, but, not, but do not focus on Christ, I have missed the point. Love stops the cooking to hug the child. Love sets aside the decorating to kiss the husband. Love is kind, though harried and tired. Love doesn't envy another's home that has coordinated Christmas china and table linens. Love doesn't yell at the kids to get out of the way, but is thankful that they are there to be in the way. Love doesn't give only to those who are able to give in return, but rejoices in giving to those who can't. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. 
Video games will break. Pearl necklaces will be lost. Golf clubs will, be, will rust. But giving the gift of love will endure. You see, when we truly understand what God has done for us at Christmas, it will change our life. God's gift of Christmas changes the way we see God, and it changes the way we see other people as well. It's inevitable. You can't get away from it. This is the built-in DNA of Christmas that alters everything. God's gift of love prompts our actions of love towards other people. Of course, it's possibly become so busy and worn out at Christmas that we miss God's gift of love. It's possibly become so self-absorbed in the activities of Christmas, what we have to do, what we have to buy, and maybe even what we even hope to get at Christmas, that our eyes can become blind to God's love light that's found in the Christ child. But if we will only stop, if we will stop and think about what this glorious day of Christmas really means, it can change everything. In a moment, I want to show you a short video of what can happen if we will truly stop and consider what God has done for us at Christmas. Vic is going to prepare that video for us now. When Europe marched into war in the summer of 1914, both sides thought the fighting would be over in a few weeks. Instead, by the close of December, World War I had already claimed close to a million lives and it was clear the fighting would go on for a long time. Yet on December 24th, 1914, right in the middle of that war, 100 years ago this year, much of the Western Front fell silent as ordinary soldiers made temporary peace with the enemy. This was the remarkable situation that has come to be called the Christmas Truce of 1914. It's estimated that about 100,000 men, 100,000 men, mainly British and Germans, took part. In fact, the sheer magnitude of the event led many to doubt that it ever happened. Today, however, it is often seen as one of the few bright moments amid the slaughter of the Great War in which 14 million people were killed. Here, watch this video of the Truce of Christmas 1914. Jenkins, open. No.
Ein Britter kommt! Ein Britter kommt! Jim? Jim, don't, don't do it! Halt! Hey. Er ist nicht bewaffnet! Nein, Otto! If we could understand and remember what Christmas is all about, I wonder how different our Christmas would be. I wonder how different our relationships would be. How different our families would be. I wonder how different our world could be. When God came as a baby, he changed the world. Of course, for many people, the world didn't seem different at all. The King Herods of the world continued to fight and battle for control and power. The money changers continued to try to exploit and squeeze a profit out of those who had nothing. The rich kept getting richer and the poor kept getting poorer. But something changed. In Christ, God made it possible for people to change. Through this Christmas gift of love, God made forgiveness possible. He made freedom possible. In fact, he made life possible, both now and eternally. But we must accept God's gift of love. We must surrender ourselves to his love. We must give ourselves to his son. We must yield ourselves to his salvation. This is the Christmas gift of love. It is a gift of God's glorious love that is found in Jesus Christ. Listen to this song. Jesus is God's greatest expression of love, a glorious love that makes new life possible through Jesus. Praise his name. 
Thank you, Dorothy, for singing that for us. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, I thank you for Christmas. And I thank you what it means. And Father, in the midst of all the activities of Christmas, all the enjoyable activities, all of the lesser enjoyable activities, would you remind us of what it's really about? The gift of your son, Jesus. Not only the gift of a baby, but the gift of Messiah, who lived, who loved, who was punished, who went through great trials, who took our sins upon himself, who died, and whom you raised again to victorious life. This is what Christmas is about. This is the gift of love, and we thank you for that. What a glorious love, which is ours through Jesus Christ. We praise you, and we praise you, and we praise you for who you are and what you've done. Amen. Before we go, we have one more thing to do. In these past three chapel days, we've talked about the days of Advent that help us to prepare our hearts and lives for the celebration of Christ's birth. We have lit the candles of hope, peace, and joy. And tonight we have also lit the candle of love. On Christmas Day, all these heavenly qualities, hope, peace, joy, love, all of these heavenly qualities become a living and physical reality through the birth of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And so as we conclude our last chapel service before Christmas, I want to, la to light our last candle, the Christ candle. Jesus is our hope. Jesus is our peace. Jesus is our joy. Jesus is our love. May God be ever praised for the coming and birth of our Christ child. Amen. You're dismissed.